This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 2001, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2001. We also look at the case for putting the Carpenters into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Hall isn't a hall at all. It's the Library of Congress National Recording Registry in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2001. In music, on September 7, 2001, Michael Jackson held the first of his two 30th anniversary star-studded tribute concerts at Madison Square Garden in New York City. That same day, singer Ryan Adams recorded a music video for his song, New York, New York. In the video, Ryan stood on the Brooklyn side of the East River with the skyline of Lower Manhattan behind him. Among the buildings of the skyline were the twin towers of the World Trade Center. On September 10th that year, while testifying in front of Congress about $3.2 trillion in missing defense money, U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld called the Pentagon bureaucracy the biggest threat to America. On the evening of September 10th, Michael Jackson performed the second of those 30th anniversary tribute concerts at Madison Square Garden, less than a couple miles away from the World Trade Center. The morning of September 11, 2001 started out as a pretty, relatively warm, sunny day in New York City and also in Washington, D.C. There were new album releases that day from Jay-Z, Mariah Carey, and Bob Dylan. Singer-actor and writer Seth MacFarlane of Family Guy fame and rapper and actor Marky Mark Wahlberg were both scheduled to be on flights out of Boston, Massachusetts, going to Los Angeles, California that morning, but both of them missed their flights. Those flights were the planes that went into the World Trade Center, the first one at 8.46 a.m. By the time the morning had ended, four airplanes were hijacked and crashed in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania, and almost 3,000 people lost their lives. MTV and VH1 stopped playing music videos and instead played news reports from CBS News. The Latin Grammy Awards, which were scheduled, were canceled. Sting, who was beginning an internet live stream when the attack started, only played one song, his song Fragile, and then cut the stream. After the events of that day, the new century would be marked in the human consciousness by before 9-11, and after 9-11. On September 18th of that year, the anthrax terror campaign started as letters were mailed containing the deadly chemical to various news organizations and congressmen. 22 people came in contact with anthrax. Five died as a result, including postal employees who handled the letters. 
For years, the person who the FBI said was the prime suspect was bioweapons expert Stephen Hatfill. However, after finally being exonerated in 2005, the FBI turned their attention to scientist and new chief suspect Bruce Edwards Ivins. Ivins committed suicide in 2007. The FBI named Ivins as the main suspect in 2008 and closed the case officially in 2010. All of the attacks added to the mounting fear and uneasiness in the country. In fact, things got so crazy that the group Anthrax had to put out a statement saying that they weren't going to change their name just because people wanted them to. Musically concerning all of the attacks, Clear Channel Communications, one of the largest radio station owners and now better known as iHeartRadio, gave their stations a list of songs that they highly suggested should not be played. Among them were Knockin' on Heaven's Door, both the Guns N' Roses cover version and the Bob Dylan original version, Drowning Pool's Bodies, and every single song from Rage Against the Machine which the band took as a badge of honor. A lot of songs were written about September 11th, including the Beastie Boys' An Open Letter to New York City, Beyonce's I Was There, Mary Chapin Carpenter's Grand Central Station, Alan Jackson's Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, and two songs from Sheryl Crow on her album Detours. Bruce Springsteen put out an entire album about the attacks called The Rising. There was also a charity concert held in New York City for the attack's victims. Among the acts who performed were The Who, David Bowie, and Jay-Z. The person who helped to organize the event? The man who, along with Bill Cosby, helped to jumpstart the hashtag MeToo movement, former Miramax CEO and now convicted sexual predator Harvey Weinstein. In fact, there were at least five megastar charity concerts to benefit the victims of 9-11. Surprisingly, very few minority artists, aside from Jay-Z and Michael Jackson, were invited to perform at these charity concerts. There was, however, an all-Latino charity concert called Hispanos Unidos por New York that was held on December 9th that year. Artists like Sheryl Crow and the Dave Matthews bands either changed the songs that they were releasing around that time period, pulled certain songs off of upcoming albums, or changed album covers for upcoming releases because of the uh, anthrax attacks and also the 9-11 attacks. The other huge world-changing music story of 2001 was one that no one at the time realized the impact that it would have, and it wouldn't even come from a musical artist. On January 9, 2001, Apple CEO Steve Jobs announced the iTunes Media Player. On October 23rd of that year, Apple released the first iPod. After those two events, music was never the same, for better or for worse, your choice. Other musical events of 2001 included a crowd that crushed and killed a woman during Limp Bizkit's performance at the Sydney, Australia Big Day Out Festival. Michael Jackson was found not guilty of plagiarizing an Italian songwriter's song. Sean Combs was found not guilty of the events surrounding a nightclub shooting in New York City that happened back in 1999. Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown trashed their hotel room at the Bel Air Hotel and both were arrested because of it, along with being banned from the hotel for life. 
Whitney also signed a six-album, $100 million record deal with Arista Records. Mariah Carey, not to be outdone, signed a four-album, $80 million record deal with Virgin Records. Mariah also entered treatment for mental health issues after having a series of mental health breakdowns, including an infamous appearance on the MTV show Total Request Live. Country music legend Charlie Pride released a tribute to Jim Reeves, which was the first compact disc to have copy protection embedded into it, making it extremely difficult to copy the disc for personal use. Copy protection became a trend until MP3s completely took over music. MP3 file sharer Napster closed down after being forced to by court injunctions. By then, though, despite the music industry's better efforts, the genie had already been sprung from the bottle, and MP3s became the music vehicle of choice until streaming services cut into song and album sales in the next decade. Also in 2001, XM Satellite Radio started. Bands that formed in 2001 included Andion, Arcade Fire, Audio Slave, The Black Keys, Dance Nation, Dirty Vegas, The Dresden Dolls, Fallout Boy, Gabrielle and Dresden, Jet, The Killers, LCD Sound System, The Modern, Nemesis, The Postal Service, Scissor Sisters, Vinny Vici, Seville, Sneaky Sound System, and My Chemical Romance, whose lead singer, Gerard Way, was inspired to follow his dreams and start the band after witnessing the 9-11 New York City attacks firsthand as he was crossing New York Harbor in a ferry that day. Mel C. quit the Spice Girls in 2001. Jason Newstead quit Metallica. Wes Borland left Limp Bizkit. Mike Turner left Our Lady Peace. Don Felder was fired from the Eagles. Eric Singer replaced Peter Chris as drummer of KISS. Bands that either broke up before, of course, their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included All Saints, The Afghan Wigs, Aqua, Babes in Toyland, Breathe, Damn Yankees, Deep Blue Something, Elastica, Groove Theory, James, L7, and 17 Orbit, Republica, Savage Garden, Semisonic, Skunk Anansi, Sunvolt, TKO, Total, Tilt, The Toadies, Twisted Sister, Escape, and Electric Light Orchestra, better known as ELO, who then reformed later in the year without original member Jeff Lynne. Other groups that reformed in 2001 or came back from their hiatus included Level 42, The Monkees, Maroon 5, Roxy Music, and Sunny Day Real Estate. Jennifer Lopez became the first female artist to have a number one album and a number one movie that she starred in during the same exact week when her album J-Lo and her movie The Wedding Planner both hit number one that week. Billboard's biggest-selling album of the year, though, was Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory. Other big sellers were from Shaggy, NSYNC, Janet Jackson, Enya, Stained, Alicia Keys, Destiny's Child, Creed, Gorillaz, Aerosmith, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, and the Now That's What I Call Music Volume 6 compilation album. Janet Jackson's song, All For You, was added to three major mainstream radio formats in its first week of release, becoming the first song to ever do that. Billboard's biggest-selling song of 2001, however, 
was Lifehouse's Hanging by a Moment. Other big songs were Fallen from Alicia Keys, Drops of Jupiter by Train, I'm Real from Jennifer Lopez and Ja Rule, If You're Gone from Matchbox 20, Let Me Blow Your Mind from Eve and Gwen Stefani, Thank You from Dido, again from Lenny Kravitz, Independent Women from Destiny's Child, and No Doubt's Hella Good. Heavy metal was still breathing, although it had fully transformed into rap rock and pop punk with bands like Linkin Park, P.O.D., and Some 41 chopping the charts. Big bands like Nickelback, Aerosmith, Entombed, Drowning Pool, Guar, Tool, System of a Down, Slipknot, Slayer, Judas Priest, Megadeth, and Avenged Sevenfold all put out albums that year as well. In country music, some of the biggest albums of the year were Leanne Rimes' I Need You, Lone Star's I'm Already There, Trisha Yearwood's Inside Out, Toby Keith's Pull My Chain, Garth Brooks' Scarecrow, George Strait's The Road Less Traveled, Tim McGraw's Set This Circus Down, Brooks and Dunn's Steers and Stripes, and Greatest Hits albums from Martina McBride and Reba McIntyre. Best-selling country songs included Toby Keith's You Shouldn't Kiss Me Like This, I'm Just Talking About Tonight, and I Want to Talk About Me. Also, Alan Jackson's Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, his 9-11 tribute song, and Where I Come From. Brooks and Dunn's is Only in America and Ain't Nothing About You. Jamie O'Neill's There Is No Arizona and Also When I Think About Angels. Lone Star's I'm Already There and Also Tell Her. Kenny Chesney's Don't Happen Twice. Diamond Rio's One More Day. Tim McGraw's Angry All the Time and Also Grown Men Don't Cry. And the Dixie Chicks, now known simply as the Chicks' song, Without You. In hip-hop, the biggest albums of the year included DMX's The Great Depression, Tupac's Until the End of Time, Jay-Z's The Blueprint, which came out on 9-11, D12's Devil's Night, Ja Rule's Pain is Love, Nas's Stillmatic, Lil Bow Wow's Doggy Bag, Ludacris's Word of Mouth, Juvenile's Project English, and Jada Kiss's Kiss the Game Goodbye. Big singles included Outkast, Miss Jackson, and also So Fresh and So Clean, Clean, Nelly's Ride With Me, E.I., and Number One, Jay-Z's Izzo and Girls, 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 Trick Daddy's I'm a Thug, D12's Purple Pills, Missy Misdemeanor Elliott's Get Your Freak On, Eric Sermon's Music, Ludacris's Area Codes, Fabulous's Can't Deny It, and Nas's Uchiwali. In dance music, BPM became the first dance channel on Sirius XM, which launched that year. Despite England having a serious foot-and-mouth disease, insert your own joke about British politics there, the country still held its heavy slate of music festivals. Among the albums that were released in 2001... Well, there was Tiesto's first solo album, In My Memory, also Paul Van Dyke's The Politics of Dancing, Daft Punk's Discovery, Jamiroquai's A Funk Odyssey, and Ministry of Sounds' The Chill Out Session. Big EDM singles included Roy De Silva and Cassandra's Touch Me, Daft Punk's Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, Roger Sanchez's Another Chance, Tiesto's remix of Delirium and Sarah McLaughlin's song Silence, Io and Nadia Ali's Rapture, 
Faithless's We Come One, Andy C's Body Rock, Lasko's Something, Armin Van Buren's The Sound of Goodbye, Paul Van Dyke's We Are Alive, Dirty Vegas's Days Go By, which became huge after being used in a car commercial that year, Basement Jax's Where's Your Head At, Fatboy Slims's Song for Shelter and also Weapon of Choice, and the Chemical Brothers' It Began in Africa and Star Guitar. The top 10 DJs on DJ Mags's Top 100 DJs poll for the year were John Digweed, Sasha, Danny Teneglia, Paul Van Dyke, Paul Oakenfold, Tiesto, Carl Cox, Mauro Picotto, Steve Lawler, and Deep Dish. Latin artists who had big 2001s included Paulina Rubio, Vicente Fernandez, A.B. Quintanilla, E. Los Cumbia Kings, Lupio Rivera, Azul Azul, Grupo Brindis, Luis Miguel, Marco Antonio Solis, Christian Castro, M.D.O., Jackie Velasquez, Cheyenne, Palomo, and crossover artists Ricky Martin and Christina Aguilera, who both put out Latin albums that year. Musical films and documentaries that came out in 2001 included Beijing Rocks, Glitter, Carmen, a hip opera, Hedwig and the Angry Itch, Moulin Rouge, Rockstar, and Scratch. Musicals or a revival of musicals that opened on Broadway included Mamma Mia, 42nd Street, You're in Town, and The Producers, which was a smash pop culture hit, much like Hamilton was in the mid-2010s. Artists who were born in 2001 included Billie Eilish, Zach Heron of Why Don't We, Carson Luders, and Lil TJ. Singer Alia was killed in a plane crash in 2001 when her small plane was overloaded with gear from a music video she was shooting in the Bahamas, and then the plane crashed shortly after takeoff from all of the weight. Other artists who passed away in 2001 included George Harrison, John Lee Hooker, Chet Atkins, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, Joey Ramone of the Ramones, Perry Como, Les Brown of Les Brown and his Band of Renown, Melanie Thornton of La Bouche, Spanish rapper Quevedo, composer John Fahey, violinist Isaac Stern, Stuart Adamson of Big Country, Kenny Green of Intro, drummer Billy Higgins, harmonica player Larry Adler, trombonist J.J. Johnson, and Chuck Schulender of Death. In award ceremonies for the music of 2001, at the Grammy Awards, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou movie soundtrack won Album of the Year. Also, Alicia Keys won Song of the Year for Fallen and also Best New Artist. U2 won Record of the Year for Walk On. Janet Jackson won MTV's first Icon Award at the Video Music Awards. The video for the song Lady Marmalade by Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Maya, and Pink won Video of the Year, though, that year. That ceremony was also the one with Britney Spears's famous Snake Charmer performance to her song I'm a Slave for You. At the American Music Awards, Luther Vandross, Aaliyah, Charday. Enrique Iglesias, Brooks and Dunn, Faith Hill, Lenny Kravitz, Janet Jackson, InSync, Tim McGraw, and Limp Bizkit were the big winners. At the Billboard Music Awards, Destiny's Child won Artist of the Year. 
Alicia Keys won Entertainer of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards. Faith Hill, Garth Brooks, and NSYNC won the music categories at the People's Choice Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Copenhagen, Denmark that year, Tanel Pater, Dave Benton, and the group 2XL from Estonia won for the song Everybody, making Dave Benton the first black person to ever win at Eurovision. Tim McGraw won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards, and the Dixie Chicks, now of course known as the Chicks, won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Dido won Best British Album for No Angel, and S Club 7 won Best Song for Don't Stop Moving at the Brit Awards. Diana Krall won Artist of the Year and also won Best Album of the Year for The Look of Love, while Nickelback won Best Song for How You Remind Me at the Juno Awards. Powderfinger won Album of the Year for Odyssey No. 5 and also won Single of the Year for My Happiness at the Aria Music Awards. At the Tony Awards, the producers won Best Musical, winning 12 Tony Awards out of 15 nominations. 42nd Street won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music was won by John Corigliano for Symphony No. 2. Musically at the Academy Awards, Randy Newman won Best Song for If I Didn't Have You from the movie Monsters, Inc. And Howard Shore won Best Original Score for The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. P.J. Harvey won the Mercury Music Prize for the album Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. The 2001 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on March 19th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted guitarist James Burton and pianist Johnny Johnson into the Sidemen category. Island Records founder Chris Blackwell was inducted into the non-performers category. And in the performers category, the hall inducted Aerosmith, Solomon Burke, Michael Jackson, The Flamingos, Paul Simon, Richie Valens, Steely Dan, and this next group. Back in the late 1960s, while in art college, young Farouk Bulsara became friends with bassist Tim Staffel, who was in a band called Smile at the time. Farouk became a fan of the band and ended up joining them when Staffel left the band to form another band. Farouk joined the band and did two name changes at that time. The first was that he persuaded the rest of the members of the band, guitarist Brian May and drummer Roger Taylor, to change their name from Smile to Queen. The second was that Farouk Balsara changed his name to Freddie Mercury. Queen played with different bassists for a couple of years until they found the perfect bassist in John Deacon. In 1973, the band signed a record deal and released their debut album, Queen. The critics liked the progressive metal sound of the band, but the public didn't find the album, even with the now well-known lead single from that album, Keep Yourself Alive. Their second album, Queen 2, found success both with the critics and with the general public. That album had the classic Seven Seas of Rye on it. In 1974, the band released Sheer Heart Attack, which gave them even bigger success with songs like Killer Queen, Now I'm Here, and Stone Cold Crazy. Album number four came around in 1975. That album, A Night at the Opera, became a worldwide smash. 
The album had the hits Love of My Life, You're My Best Friend, and another song that would chart top 10 three times in America. The second time with the help of a movie about two kids with a cable access TV show, and a third time with the help of an Academy Award winning performance. According to historians, some of the ideas for the song Bohemian Rhapsody were formulated in the late 1960s, especially the beginning part where the singer of the song talks about the fact that he just killed a man. The song, all planned out by Freddie beforehand, starts with a 49-second intro, then goes into an almost two-minute ballad, then Brian May's 25-second guitar solo, then the one-minute opera that everybody and their grandmother loves singing, especially in a car, then a quick little 47-second rock portion and has a one-minute ending. All totaled, it is a 5-minute, 55-second mini-rock opera about a guy who accidentally kills a guy, sold his soul to the devil, then called God up to help save him. That would be the opera portion in the center. The band started recording the song in late August 1975, and it took about three weeks to do it. They had rehearsed it for three weeks beforehand. They layered over 100 different tracks onto the song. Brian May's guitar solo, however, is all him, one track only. The record label, as you can imagine, was not pleased with a six-minute song. They thought it didn't fit into the cookie-cutter four minutes or less corporate radio world, so the band took the song to Capitol Radio DJ Kenny Everett, who played it on his station. He teased it first by playing little bits of it until the public wanted more. It then got picked up by other radio stations, and after that, Queens's record label Elektra released the song on October 31, 1975. The song Bohemian Rhapsody became a huge hit, especially in England, where it went to number one. In America, it went top ten, number nine to be precise, in its initial run. The song sold over 30 million copies worldwide to date. The music video that was made for the song is also considered a template for how music videos were made, at least back in the 1970s. The song has been popularized a few more times. The first was during the unfortunate early death of Freddie Mercury from the complications of AIDS in 1991, when it finally hit number one in America when it was released with the song These Are the Days of Our Lives as a double A-side single in late 1991. The second was when a movie called Wayne's World, about two guys who had a cable access TV show, used the song in the now-famous headbanging in the car scene. The third was a few years ago when the band's biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, with a Best Picture Academy Award-winning performance by Rami Malek as the late great Freddie Mercury, took the song back to the top ten in the U.K., after that, the band became dominant through the late 1970s and into the early 1980s with albums A Day at the Races, News of the World, Jazz, The Game, The Works, and A Kind of Magic. They also had hit soundtracks for the movies Flash Gordon, Iron Eagle, and Highlander. Of course, if you saw the movie, then you know that the band's popularity started to go down in America as New Wave took over the industry. As a matter of fact, even though a bunch of their songs are now considered classics and are classic radio rock staples in America, those songs were not exactly hugely popular when they were originally released. 
much like a lot of songs these days that are considered some of the greatest songs ever written. Regardless of how they were perceived commercially and on the charts in America, they were still a huge touring draw and hugely popular in England, continuously racking up top 10 albums and singles while in America they weren't doing so great. See their legendary performance at Live Aid as proof of their popularity in the UK. Freddie's health started to deteriorate from the effects of the AIDS virus as he fronted the band's final couple of albums in the early 1990s. You can see the beating his body took in the band's video for the song These Are the Days of Our Lives. Watching him will leave more than a few tears in your eyes. After Freddie's death on November 24, 1991, the band held a tribute concert at Wembley Stadium, site of their legendary Live Aid performance. Then the group marched on with several different singers, including Robbie Williams from Take That, before finally landing on American Idol contestant Adam Lambert. They've been touring ever since, although bassist John Deacon retired from the band in 1997, although he is still the group's financial advisor. Queen are one of the biggest selling musical artists of all time, with claimed sales of up to 300 million copies and are the third best selling band in England, right after the Beatles, of course, and the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stone magazine voted Freddie the second greatest frontman of all time and the 18th greatest singer of all time, while voting the band the 52nd greatest artists of all time. Queen put out 14 studio albums during Freddie's tenure as frontman, along with two live albums, two greatest hits albums, and two box sets. There have been a bunch of all of those different types of albums that have been released since Freddie passed away, in order, of course, to cash in on the group's legacy. Of the albums that were released while Freddie was alive, five hit the top ten in America, with 1980's The Game hitting number one. In the UK... It's a completely different story, with 17 albums hitting the top 10, including 9 hitting number 1. As far as singles that were released while Freddie was alive, 53 were released, with 5 hitting the top 10 in America, including Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Another One Bites the Dust, and the aforementioned 1991 re-release of Bohemian Rhapsody, all hitting number 1. In the UK, again... A completely different story, as they had 20 songs hit the top 10, including four number ones. Presented for induction by the late great Taylor Hawkins of 2022 inductees The Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl of The Foo Fighters and also 2014 inductees Nirvana, Freddie Mercury, Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon. Queen inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2001, and we have put selections from their greatest hits albums on this week's playlist for the podcast, the link of which is in the show notes. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast, where we go over the events, music releases, births, and passings for that day in music history. 
The Music History Today podcast drops each and every day, including on the weekends, on this channel, the Music History Today Network, and also on our Music History Today Network YouTube page. Now, back to the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we are going to make a case for a duo who have been completely overlooked and almost forgotten by both millennials and Gen Z. Karen and Richard Carpenter, better known as the Carpenters. Most generations only know of the Carpenters due to Richard Carpenter's struggles with substance abuse and also his philanthropic endeavors. They might also know Karen Carpenter because of her struggles and ultimate demise from the eating disorder anorexia nervosa. However, in their 14-year career, the Carpenters left quite a legacy. So, with that in mind, and as a reminder of who they were, to the tale of the tape we go. The Carpenters released 10 albums while Karen was alive. Of those, five hit the top 20 in America, with three of those hitting number two. Their 1973 Greatest Hits album hit number one in America, Canada, and the UK and sold at least nine million copies worldwide, including seven million copies in America by itself. They had five albums hit the top 10 in Canada, three hitting the top 10 in the UK, including one hitting the top spot, and surprisingly, they had five hitting the top 10 in Japan, including two of those hitting number one. In fact, the Carpenters are actually the seventh biggest selling artists in the UK during the 1970s and the third biggest selling international artists of all time in Japan, right behind Mariah Carey and the Beatles. As far as their singles went, they released 50 singles, with 35 of those being released in Karen's lifetime. Of those, 25 hit the top 10 worldwide, with 19 hitting number one, including 16 number ones in America. They had huge hits like They Long to Be Close to You, We've Only Just Begun, Please Mr. Postman, There's a Kind of Hush, Only Yesterday, Top of the World, Yesterday Once More, Rainy Days and Mondays, among countless others. All totaled, they have estimated sales of over 100 million copies sold worldwide. They were pop adult contemporary chart juggernauts, which is where they got a lot of those number one songs to land. And while they're known for slow songs, smooth vocals, and especially Karen's silky smooth voice, a lesser thing that is remembered about them is that Karen was actually a great drummer. In fact, one poll that was done during the group's heyday actually named Karen as the greatest drummer alive. Don't believe how great her drumming was? Just Google Karen Carpenter drumming on YouTube and you will see for yourself. The woman was no slouch, as she showed in all of the TV specials that the Carpenters did back in the 1970s. They also won three Grammy Awards and one American Music Award. Rolling Stone called them the 10th greatest duo of all time. Paul McCartney once said that Karen had the best female singing voice in the world, and Michael Jackson said that the duo was one of his childhood influences. There have been a lot of campaigns to get the Carpenters into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame over the years. 
they've basically been blown off and scoffed at by the Hall voters because their music is considered, quote, too soft, end quote, for the Hall. However, current trends in voting have seen a shift in who the Hall is letting in by including country crossover artists and also artists like Lionel Richie, who is also considered too soft for the Hall at one time. Perhaps now is the time for the Hall to see fit to put Karen and Richard Carpenter into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if you need a reminder as to who exactly they were, we've put their songs also on the playlist. The link is in the show notes, as always. Each week in this spot, we highlight a different musical Hall of Fame or museum, since there's a bunch more than just the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For instance, there's the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, the Grammy Museum, among countless others. This time, though, we're going to talk about one that isn't a hall per se. However, to me, it's probably the most important. The Library of Congress, aside from being a place in the movie All the President's Men, is the nation's library. Established in April of 1800, it has more than 38 million books, 14 million photographs, 70 million manuscripts, and 5.5 million maps. From a musical standpoint, it's important for a couple of reasons. The first is that it has over 8 million pieces of sheet music and over 3.5 million recordings. The second and more important reason is what it does with certain recordings. Since the passage of the National Recording Preservation Act of 2000, the library has developed a registry to preserve and protect certain pieces of music and other recordings that are considered historically relevant. That is a pretty high honor, knowing that your song or album is so important to the nation that it needs to be preserved forever. This is a pretty high-class list you're joining here now. Some of these recordings are actually speeches or radio shows from yesteryear. For instance, the earliest recorded version of Abbott and Costello's Who's on First comedy sketch, Orson Welles's original War of the Worlds radio broadcast, and Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech are all in the registry as are the first recordings on cylinders that Thomas Edison used to show off the phonograph at an exhibition. The first official class was in 2002. There were 50 recordings that were all declared important, and all of the above-mentioned recordings were in that first class. She is called the Empress of the Blues. She is considered the most popular blues singer of the 1920s and 30s. She influenced not only the blues, but also jazz music. She is Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith was born on April 15, 1894 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Her parents both died by the time she was nine years old. Her older sister stepped in and raised her. Because of her poor upbringing, Bessie didn't get an education. Instead, her and her brother played music and sang on the streets of Chattanooga in order to make money for the family. When Bessie was a teenager, her brother went away with a traveling performance group. When he got back, he got Bessie an audition with the group. She was hired not as a singer, though, 
but as a dancer, because the group already had a singer. As it turns out, the legendary Miss Ma Rainey. After a while, though, Bessie moved on to other groups and made a name for herself on the East Coast and in the South between 1930 and 1920. Right around 1920, record labels started looking for black female singers to sign, mainly due to the popularity of the song Crazy Blues by Mamie Smith. By then, as record labels wanted to cash in on black female singers after excluding them for decades upon decades, Bessie was ready to dominate blues music. She signed a record deal with Columbia Records in 1923. After that, her career skyrocketed. She appeared on Broadway in one play and also appeared in one film called St. Louis Blues, which itself was inducted into the National Film Registry in 2006. However, she really made her mark with recordings, of which she made almost 200 recordings in her career and became one of the biggest stars of early recorded music. She also made her name and living with her appearances in speakeasies and on vaudeville stages. Her first record, Downhearted Blues, with the B-side Gulf Coast Blues, was a smash hit. The song was written by jazz singer Alberta Hunter, with music written by pianist Lovey Austin. Hunter sang the first known version in Chicago with King Oliver's band out in Chicago and then recorded it in 1922. In 1923, Bessie decided to record the song, but she only had Clarence Williams' piano accompanying her, not a band. The single sold 780,000 copies in the first six months and eventually sold over 2 million copies, which was no small task in 1923, mind you. Smith's version is considered one of the greatest songs of the 20th century, along with being selected for induction into the Grammy Hall of Fame and also the National Recording Registry. During her career, Bessie became the highest-paid African-American performer in the world, mainly due to her live performances as she never received her proper royalties from her record sales with Columbia Records. In fact, she at one time made $2,000 per show, which works out to about $35,000 in today's money. Bessie enjoyed the luxurious life so much that she traveled America for her gigs in a custom-made railway car, which, when you think about the treatment of African Americans during that time period, was quite remarkable. Her personal life was colorful, to say the least. The lady stood at 5 foot 9 inches, weighed 200 pounds, and was tough. Once, according to legend, someone tried to stab her after she performed on stage in Chattanooga, Tennessee. With the knife still stuck in her chest, she chased after the person and then went to the hospital. She performed the next night as well. She also wasn't afraid to punch out a man or woman or even two or three. In fact, she knocked out her husband's mistress once Bessie caught them together. Bessie once had the Ku Klux Klan picket one of her shows. Big mistake on the Klan's part. Bessie got so angry that she went out to the Klan and yelled at them to leave or she would get angry, and they did not want to see her get angry. 
the clan picked up and left, which was a very smart decision for a bunch of really stupid people. Bessie was also said to love three things in her life, singing, sex, and alcohol, and she did all three of those in heaping helpings. She enjoyed lots of sex with both men, women, and a combination of both from time to time, supposedly. Unfortunately, Bessie Smith passed away on September 26, 1937, at the age of 43, when a car that she was a passenger in collided with a truck. She had more than 10,000 people attend her funeral in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her influence can be found in a number of singers, especially blues singers, that she left her mark on. In fact, Janis Joplin, not exactly a slouch in blues singing herself, paid for Bessie's headstone when she found out that Bessie was never given a headstone for her gravesite. On the headstone, Janice had the following phrase inscribed on it. Quote, The greatest blues singer in the world will never stop singing. End quote. Bessie Smith's 1923 song, Downhearted Blues, inducted into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry in Washington, D.C. in 2002. And we have added that song, along with a selection of Bessie Smith's other songs, on our playlist for this podcast, the link to which is in the show notes. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast from, and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>